Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand. The stone which was set at naught, that you the builders which has become the head in the corner, neither is there salvation in any other name. Whereby we must be saved. If you know there's power in the name of Jesus, uh, why don't you call on it right now? There's healing in that name. There's deliverance in that name. There's miracles in that name. Uh, all of heaven comes to earth when you call on that name. I want to preach to you tonight on this subject. You can return back to your seats. I want to preach to you tonight about at the feet of Judas. The Bible says that after Peter gave this account in Acts 4, verse number 12, he said, Neither is there salvation in any other name, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved you can remain standing for just a moment sorry about that a little confusing i know the bible says that now when they saw the boldness of peter and john and perceived that these were unlearned and ignorant men they marveled that they took knowledge of them and they took knowledge of them they took notes he said, we, we've got to recognize who and what these men are. Why? Because they had been with Jesus. Their doctrine couldn't win the Pharisees. The gospel couldn't even win the Pharisees. But they said, if nothing else, we can recognize that they have been with the one that we have crucified. I got a little bit ahead of myself. I give honor to your pastor and sister pastor in their absence this evening. <laughs> pastor Wright has been ministering at Brother Wells Church in Titusville, Florida, and, and sister, sister pastor is uh, at home, not feeling too well, so keep her keep her in your prayers, but he will be back this evening. I, I think I have to say preaching is the one thing, there's never been a doubt in my mind I felt called to 
and I love to preach until the Lord tells me what I'm going to preach about. And then I feel a little bit like Isaiah, send me, O Lord. And then he says, okay, go say this. And I said, I I meant send me back to the piano. We were talking about, I don't want to scare you too much, but we were talking about it this morning and, uh, and, and uh, Jalen found out, which, by the way, I have to, have to give honor to, to him as well. It absolutely brought a powerful, powerful word from the Lord this morning. He said, man, that's so cool. I didn't know we were going to have a, a doubleheader Sunday. Um, I'm not really a big sports guy, so that one kind of went over my head a little bit. Um, but I got the gist of it. And I said, yeah, I, I really was envious of you, you know, when, when Pastor had asked me about this. He said, because Sunday nights, I mean, sorry, Sunday mornings, the fun one, can get up there and just declare the good things of God. But Sunday night, oh, Lord, you never know what he's going to say. But <laughs> I've not come here tonight with a rebuke on my spirit. I have come with the word from God. And I say that in the in the fear of his presence and in the fear of the Lord. So please hear my spirit tonight. It's not a rebuke, but it is a burden. And if at times it comes across in a strong way, I have to urge you it's a it's a strong burden. So if you could, why don't we just lift our hands all across this place? One last time, there's such an amazing and a powerful presence. Jesus, you may be seated. I know we've had a long weekend for some of us, a long week. Some of us have been at School of Tyrannus and P7 CMI Summit Friday and Saturday. So I can't tell you, I won't take long tonight, but I'll tell you, I'll try to not go any longer than I need to. Um, I love being apostolic. Can I amend that? I wouldn't mind. I have, to the best of my novice ability, studied out the things of, of, of God, the Pentecostal apostolic theology. And um, it is, from what I have been able to see, the truth. We are privileged probably more than we know or acknowledge. We are, are privileged with having a revelation of the oneness of God. That I, I know at times it's so normal to us, but it is something that we should be thankful for every single day. I'm thankful to have an understanding of Acts 2.38. I'm thankful to have an understanding of the plan of salvation. 
I'm thankful to know that when I repent, Jesus came and he died, and his blood every single day can wash away my sins. He can turn me around because he has. He can place my feet on solid ground. I'm thankful to be a part of a church that knows apostolic truth. I'm thankful to know that his grace is sufficient every single day. I have searched his word and I have found him to be true. I'm glad to know that we don't have to come and talk about a God that we don't know every single Sunday. I'm glad to know, I'm glad to know that the book of Acts didn't end in the book of Acts. I'm glad to be a part of a church that believes there's power in the name of Jesus. And I'll have to see how long I can keep going to get more people to be thankful for being apostolic because I don't ever want to take it for granted. I couldn't be put in any other place, any other location, but for whatever reason, he decided to choose you and I with the revelation of who he is. Not only of who he is, but hey, here's how you can commune with me. Here's how you can walk with me. Here's who you are. But don't worry, I'm not going to leave you as you are. I'm going to come and I'm going to die. So that you can live, so that I can walk with you. Because we read all throughout scripture. As, as humanity struggles to maintain a walk with the Lord. Humanity struggles to maintain a walk with Christ. But I'm glad that he came and provided a way. I'm glad that I know that he doesn't just come into my life when I accept him. But I know that when I repent and I begin to praise him, his spirit doesn't just surround me, but it enters me. I'm glad to know that the same evidence in the book of Acts is still being practiced today. I don't just have to wonder if he's in me. I don't just have to wonder where his presence is. But in just a moment, all I have to... And the spirit of the living God that said, let there be light. The spirit of the living God that said, Lazarus, come forth. He begins to flow from inside of me to the outside of me. The day of Pentecost was not just so that we would have an evidence for, for receiving his spirit. But in principle, what the day of Pentecost meant was that we can get so filled with God that he begins to physically manifest himself on the outside. What do we say when we're praying with someone to receive the Holy Ghost? Just yield to that right there. That's it right there. Just, just give to that tongue right there. Why? Because all we have to do is just let him come in. And when he comes in, it, 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 it takes us to a place that no one until the day of Pentecost had ever experienced full of the Holy Ghost. When the almighty God of the Old Testament and the almighty God of the New Testament comes and fills me from the soles of my feet to the top of my head, I'm thankful to be apostolic. Ephesians 4 and verse 3, when Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, 
He says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Next verse. Sorry. (laughs) Because there is one body, one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. That revelation enough should be something that you can give God praises for. That it's not a question, is is he three? Is he co-equal? How do I accept him? How do I experience him? There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one gate. It might be tight, it might be narrow, but there's one way to heaven. There's one reconciler. And he came and he died for you and I. I'm thankful to be in a church that, that exercises the gifts of the Spirit, that believes in the fivefold ministry. At times, Antioch Central, I have to level with you. I don't think we realize there is a push all across our movement, an entire ministry devoted to the fivefold ministry to try to promote it being used more in the church today. But we naturally, as a healthy Body and, or, and, and, and as a healthy organ, organism working together, we have the, the office of an apostle, the office of a prophet that works. Uh, it's not unfamiliar to us when there's a word of tongues given in, a, in an interpretation. It's not unfamiliar to us to see someone working in the gift of faith, to see someone working with the gift of knowledge. And it's not something to take for granted. It's not every place that has such freedom and such liberty to work in the prophetic, to move in the spirit like we do, to go to dimensions and say things and have liberty like we have in this place, to walk in and get in the flow of the spirit and see what God wants to do, see how God wants to show up, see what God's will is, see what God wants to say, not not what a man decides. Not what a man determines, this is what they need to hear, this is what they don't need to hear. But when God can speak through a vessel. It's not something to take for granted. Our teaching, what we've learned, what we've been taught our entire lives about religious tradition, about spiritual warfare. I'm thankful to be in a church tonight that if I I know without a shadow of a doubt, if the spirit of intercession moved into this room, people would be so sensitive that that women would begin to cry and to weep and to travail without me even saying anything. We're sensitive to the spirit. We know what it means to take dominion and authority and, and strongholds down. I'm thankful to be in an apostolic church that that knows that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That our war is not with people. It's not with with the physical beings of this world. But our world is 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 supernatural just as much as it's natural. And we know that we walk every single day in the supernatural just as much as we walk in the natural. I'm thankful to have the knowledge of what it means to be apostolic. I'm thankful to be in a church that 
practices the apostolic doctrine, that practices the, the disciples' doctrine, that, that lives every day in breaking bread and fellowshipping with one another. We don't just talk about the book of Acts, but we see it every single day. In this church that you're standing in, you're sitting in right now, it's become a priority. And I'm thankful that I had the, the opportunity and the blessing to be raised in such an apostolic church. But I've come to tell you tonight, Antioch Central, as I've laid the foundation, I'm thankful to be apostolic and to take the word of God for what it is, not for what men tell me it is, not because of what someone else has translated it and interpreted it to be, not because of a doctrine that was conjured up by men in order to please and to appease people. I don't stand here today standing on a doctrine that was built by a council to not only appease the government, but to appease the church at the time that was filled with dysfunction and disunity. But I stand here today on a doctrine that's found strictly within this word, strictly within the confines of Genesis and Revelation. I don't have to go to an outside source to find that Jesus Christ is God robed in flesh. I love John 1. I love Mark 16. I love Colossians 2, 9. When it says, don't be deceived by men's philosophies. But know that Jesus Christ is God. In the fullness of the Godhead dwelled in him bodily. Not just the Father. Not just the Son. Not just the Holy Ghost. But all three of them. In one. I don't ever want to take for granted what I know. It's a unique church. It's an uncommon church that you sit in tonight. Where we can sit. And if I sat there and read to you for the last 15 minutes. I would have lost three quarters of the crowd already. We know what it means to be sensitive. I'm sorry. I, know I heard a laugh from this section. I'm going to keep it real tonight, if that's okay. Some of the elephants in the room that we don't really talk about, I have an issue with not bringing up. If I had sat here and said, I'm, I'm here to give you a sermon tonight, I probably would have lost most of you. If I sat here and said, I spent the last three hours typing up what I was going to say to you, I would have lost you. Because we know, according to what we've been taught, and according to our knowledge of the scripture, that's not apostolic. And you're right. The apostolic principle of teaching and preaching, the only one that I have found that we can find as a pattern is Jesus gets to the temple. He opens up a scroll and says, I've come to declare the acceptable year of the Lord to you. He reads his text, he puts it away, and he starts ministering. That's apostolic. That's being apostolic when, when, when Paul taught all night long and, and, and someone fell out of a window and died. I know he didn't have enough notes to teach for that long. That, that he was letting out what was inside of him. 
He was being sensitive to the spirit. And I'm thankful to be in a church tonight that values hearing and repeating. That's been taught what it means to just hear and to echo the voice of God as he speaks. It's not something to take for granted. I'm the creative, I serve as the creative director here at Antioch Central. I can't say how ironic that task is. I'm probably the most against trans person that you will ever come in contact with. I can't stand the dark auditoriums. Sorry, I said I'm going to keep it real. I can't stand the smoke. I can't stand the light shows. I don't know how as a church we've gotten to where we... I don't know how we've gotten to where we are today. I don't know how we've gotten to pastors planning out what they're going to speak months in advance and worship teams planning on what God's going to do in a worship service three weeks in advance. I don't know how we've digressed to this point. I don't know how we have to beg you for your money to give to missions and then claim to be a church that's taking the gospel to the whole world when we sit with finances in our pocketbooks and hold on to them. I don't know how we've gotten to this point, and I'm sorry if your world is wrapped up around Antioch Central, then you're completely oblivious to this, and if that's the case, ignore everything I'm saying, because ignorance is bliss. I wish you didn't know. I wish you hadn't seen. I wish you haven't heard some of the things that I've heard men say out of their flesh and claim for it to be a, a word from God. And you can't understand where you can't find it between Genesis and Revelation. You don't understand where they got that from. But men who are Pentecostal in doctrine and, apost and apostolic, at least they claim to be. And they conjure up sermons and messages of what they think will get you on your feet. I can't comprehend it. I can't understand it. And I know that I'm sitting here, I'm standing while you sit in a church tonight that you wouldn't settle for anything less than hearing and repeating. But I've come with a burden from the Lord tonight, Antioch Central. Because while I can't stand smoking in an auditorium and dim lights, while I can't stand written sermons, while I can't stand fixed worship sets that confine the presence of God, I have to tell you that I don't believe that because it's what my bishop teaches. I don't believe it because of who our pastor is and what he teaches. I don't believe it because of how I've been raised. And I don't believe it. What am I getting at? I'm not apostolic because someone told me to be. I'm not apostolic because someone said that this is what you should be. And this is right and this is wrong. I stand before you here tonight. I claim to be an apostolic for one reason and one reason alone. That Jesus said, 
my house shall be called a house of prayer. And as he walked through the temple, flipping table after table, flipping and driving with a whip, uh, he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And you've made it a den of thieves. Uh, you've, taken, you've taken the constructs of this world uh, and you begin to blend them with the things of God. You've taken man-made thinking. Uh, you've turned this into a business. You've turned this into a market. But I don't believe that because someone told me to believe it. I believe it because it's what Jesus taught. It's how he led his life. It's how he, op- how he operated in his ministry. What I'm getting at tonight, and, and I'll, I'll give you the punchline, is Antioch, I'm glad we're apostolic. I'm glad that we know what it means to be sensitive to the Spirit and follow the leading of the Holy Ghost. And I've been terrified to bring forth this word because I don't want to make any enemies. And I don't want to make any of you upset. But I've come with a burden that just because we know what it means to be apostolic doesn't mean we know what it means to be like Jesus. I'm not going to talk to you tonight about anything that I haven't lived myself. I've sat, if anything, I'm going to share with you what the Lord has done, what he's worked in my life for the last year, year and a half to two years. I've always liked, I have at home a, a study Bible, a Schofield study Bible, and and. That study Bible, like many others, has headings and titles, if you will, above every segment of Scripture and passages. And I love what it says, Matthew 6, Matthew 5 through, through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus, it's, it's essentially his first message of his preaching that Matthew records and I love this because in, in that study Bible, it's always spoken to me in, in Matthew 6 and verse 25, the heading. It's not like this. It's probably not like this in every Bible. But Matthew 6 and 25, it's a common scripture we all know. But it says, the cure to anxiety above the top of it. And this whole segment of scripture where Jesus says, therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat. What you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? The cure to anxiety. I love that. I don't even know who Schofield is, but whoever, the way that he said that was so, speaking of, I had a minor conundrum the other day while we're talking about being apostolic. I have, as I mentioned, this study Bible at home that I have a relationship with. I'll give you a breath of fresh air. <clears throat> I've developed a relationship with this study Bible. It's, it's, it's been with me for years now. Brother Kevin Breckenridge gave it to me, and I don't take it out with me. It's thick. It's big. It's a little bit inconvenient, but, but 
it's what I read every day. It's, it's that book. It's got scribbles in it since I was 13 and 14 years old of highlighted texts and passages and all of that stuff. And I had a conniption, minor coronary, if you will. It's on the verge. When I was reading in John, or maybe it was Luke or Matthew, or I can't remember. It's the Gospels. About Jesus getting baptized and the dove coming down. And I just glanced down at the commentary at the bottom of the, the page. And it said, this here we have the, the image and, and, and the beginning of the development of the image of the Trinity in the New Testament. Oh, oh, no. How is this book that's been truth to me for so many years filled with something that's not truth? What do you do? I can't get rid of it. I'm too far in it at this point. It has too much sentimental value. But there it is. That's right. Brother Moss had a black highlighter. I thought I, I almost... Except the pen that I use bleeds horribly. It's a fountain pen, and I don't know why I use it. But if I were to highlight it, it would bleed until the other side of the page, and then it would be on the text when I flip it, and then it just would be really bad. So I, I just had to get that off my chest. I don't agree with everything Schofield says, but the cure for anxiety, that was good. The cure for anxiety. Take ye therefore no thought for the morrow. He goes on to say, putting first the kingdom of God and, 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 and his righteousness and, and all of those things. Powerful, powerful scripture. Life-changing scripture. And, and I've come tonight because my concern is, even in the apostolic church, things like, and I'll lose some of you right here, but mental health and anxiety and depression have become buzzwords in our movement because they've been, become buzzwords in our world. That through COVID, suicide, depression, anxiety, there's more. I can't even think of them. There's probably so many more. And, 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 and the things that are accepted in our culture today, they're a result of what happened. And, and they had depression they never dealt with. And they committed suicide because this and this. And in the church today, we begin to claim these things. Even in the apostolic church, even to the people I'm talking about tonight. Well, I, I, I just, you know, I suffer from anxiety. I've come to tell you that, that a mental health problem is not because of your circumstances in your life. It's because of your reaction to them. The most stressed out times of my life that I've been under pressure, that I, I've been under such a weight and such a burden, when I look back, I wasn't even under that much. The pressures of my life, I was putting on myself. And I was making myself crumble. Our problem with mental health is not the uncontrollable circumstances in your life. It's that you face it by yourself. Our, our, our church culture. Well, I could go on this all night and I'll try not to. 
But we have developed such a Western civilization idea of Christianity, even in the apostolic church. Our image of who Jesus is and what he's supposed to be is truthfully so far of what he intended. Why? Why do I say that? Well, I'm struggling with anxiety. I'm struggling with depression. Why are you struggling with that? Because, you know, such and such happened in my life. Such and such circumstances, I couldn't control that there was a, I don't know, a a plague. I know we don't even say that word anymore, thank goodness. But I couldn't control that this happened to me and, 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 and these circumstances and these trials and these situations, they all happened to me. And so, so now, you know, my, my, you know, my parents split up when I was young. So that caused a lot of X, Y, Z. And, you know, my, my dad was never around. So that caused a lot of wounds. It did cause wounds because your circumstances are valid things that happen in your life that cause wounds. They cause scars. They cause things to hurt and to damage you. But the difference is how we react because he said in this world, you will have tribulation. See, the issue is when we look at Jesus, we say if he was there, it never would have happened. If he was present because our idea of him, well, it's not it's not going to get very many amens. But unfortunately, I know because I've lived it myself when circumstances get tough. We talk about where is God when you need him? He's right there. What happens is, is our acknowledgement of him because we only acknowledge him when things are good. We only acknowledge him when things are going as they're according to go. When things are, are going as we would like them to go. That's when we're always oh, so easy to feel the presence of God. Why? Because God's doing everything he said he'd do for me. He's being my protector, my provider, and and that's true. But the cure for anxiety is, he said, take no thought for the morrow. Why? Not because tomorrow's going to be easy. Because we know what that verse really means is tomorrow's going to have its own set of problems. He doesn't say, take no thought for the morrow because I'm going to make it perfect. He says, don't think about it because if you're walking with me, you're not going to be alone. You can trust him. You can you can put your life in his hands. It, it's it's why I'm so moved, and, and you can hear the the testimony. And I, I love it when these stories come about. But Jalen shared this morning about everything that that him and, and Esther have gone through, and 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 praising in the midst of your circumstances and and all of those things. But I have to be honest with you when I hear those things happen. My response is never to look at him and say, where did you go? Because I came to the understanding that your job is not to make down here perfect for me. That your job is not for me to have an endless supply of money in the bank. Your job is not for everything in my life to go how I would like it to go. Your job is not for me to take every step and you be there every single step of the way when I can't see what's next. When I can't see what's 18 steps down. Your job is to say, hey, don't think about the next day. Just take the next step. So when difficult circumstances come, we ask, Jesus, where did you go? 
He said, I gave you the cure for anxiety so long ago. But you're not walking with me. And it's in those moments, as Jalen talked about, we, we, we have to come to the point of acknowledging he never left. He's still there. My ability to feel him or not doesn't determine where he goes. Why, 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 what does this have to do with anything? The thing I'm glad you asked. Because I'm so scared what we don't realize is how much of our culture has crept into what we believe. It's crept into what we think in our ideologies, in our thinking. I promise I'm, I'm, I'm going somewhere if you'll just hang on. I, I came to an understanding sometime in the fall of last year of how insane our world has become for this reason. We live in a society that is tailor-made to fit the desires of your flesh. More, I, I know we say that and we say, okay, yeah, that's good, I, I get that. But the reason why I'm talking about this is because it's more than we even realize. Chick-fil-A has probably ten different sauces. What does that have to do with anything because what we don't understand is that our world has begun to, to, like I said, tailor make this, this society that whatever mood I'm in, the truth is whatever mood my flesh is in. Because, I, and I'm not, I'm not out to, it's the Lord's chicken, we all know that. I'm not saying this against Chick-fil-A, but the point is the principle. The, the principle that if you're if you're a Chick-fil-A sauce person, we all have to respect it. I am, truthfully. I'm I'm addicted to Chick-fil-A sauce. It's it's insane. But hey, I know a couple I know a couple at least these guys on front row, big buffalo, big Polynesian. I'm more of a sweet and spicy sriracha guy. When I want a little spice, I'll throw that in. If I don't, just Chick-fil-A sauce, I'm happy. Not a complicated order. But it's, it's, a, it's a super simple analogy, but what we don't understand is what they are doing is no matter what mood your flesh is in, hey, we got you. Hey, it's right here. What time do you want it? Don't worry. We got mobile order. Hey, in a rush? Don't worry. Drive through. Not even drive through now. Just pick up. Just actually not even pick up. Stay in your car. They'll knock on the window. Hi, Chester. Yes, that's me. Eight Chick-fil-A sauce? Yes, thank you. I'll take it. But if I was in a buffalo mood, sure, why not? Throw 17 buffalo sauces in there. They'll do it for free. No extra charge. Only for an $18 sandwich. <laughs> Social media, we've talked about. You've heard it. Pastors mentioned it, and it's freaky, it's scary, but the algorithm, the all-knowing algorithm, and it is all-knowing, more like all-listening. It's, it's probably really not that complicated. If you don't want your golf clubs to show up on Facebook, then take a hammer to your phone. Otherwise, just you're going to have to get used to it. But the all-knowing algorithm, why? Because it just 
just people have said, oh, I was just thinking about it, and there it was, an ad in my Instagram. Because everything that you want, there it is. It's right here. How quick do you want it? Don't worry. Prime for just $2.99 overnight delivery. Unless your order is qualifying, in which case they'll just give it to you. And then some random car pulls up in your parking lot and says, here's your Amazon Prime order. Whenever we want something, we can get it right according to our timeline. Whatever it is we, can, we, we, we want, it's right there at our fingertips. Probably with a discount on Prime. It's everything we could ever want, everything we could ever need. They make it accessible to us right here. And my flashlight's on because you don't have to get one of those either. Just get a phone. I realized this last year, and to tell you the truth, I began to think about this and, and, and ponder on it. I, I told you I hate trends. So I went to Chick-fil-A, and instead of getting my variety of three sauces just to go dip, 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 I said, ah, no sauce, thanks. The interesting thing is, and I'm not, I'm not, I could, but it would be extremely goofy. But the funny thing is, the truth of the matter was I found out that a Chick-fil-A sandwich by itself actually tastes really good. And I started like picking, picking up on like seasonings in the sandwich. And I was like, wow, who knew? I didn't because I was over there with my Chick-fil-A sauce. Just dunk, 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 dunk. There, wow, you know what? While we're in a... a, a while we're laughing, I just looked over and realized I have to say, while I have the microphone in my hands, I want to thank you all for your love and support of, of me and my beautiful fiance on this next season. <laughs> I meant to do that. As we were sitting at lunch, Jacob said, do you think he's going to say anything about you tonight? I meant to just earlier. But hey, Chick-fil-A sauce, it's, you can just slide it right in there. You guys are already laughing. I've got you wide open. Because the next part's not so fun. Because when Jesus came, he, he didn't come to tailor meet our needs. No. And what I've come to talk to you about tonight is that this thinking and this mindset has, has crept into the church so much. That we love the thought of Jesus carrying the cross. We love the thought of a God who's willing to walk with us every day. We love the thought that just at the mention of his name, he's right there. It sounds so wonderful because it's true. It's true. He will. He is right there. His presence is so accessible. It's so easy to get into. But we don't love the thought of having to give something up and dying to him daily. And I love the thought of being apostolic. But don't make me be apostolic outside of 10 to 12 and 6 to 8 on a Sunday night. The issue with this thinking is Jesus doesn't really give any opportunity for this when he ministers. 
The Bible says in Luke 9 and 23, it's a familiar passage. Actually, hold off before you put it on the screen. I'll do a little Bible trivia. Jesus says, if any man would follow me, he must first what? That's not usually how we quote it. I heard it mentioned just this past weekend. Take up your cross to follow him. Take up your cross and follow. It sounds, see, even, even, see, here's, oh. Because as apostolics, we know we have to die. We know we have to lay something down. So, yes, it sounds so wonderful. I'll take up my cross all day. I'll take up my cross and I'll carry it because I understand I have a responsibility to be a part of being apostolic is a responsibility to be like Jesus. But the problem is that's not where he started. He started in Luke 9 and verse 23 with, if any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And then Luke throws in there against all the other gospels daily. And follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Hold on, please. Hold on. Don't don't check out tonight because we're getting somewhere. I promise. This is just the foundation. But my concern is, is in our thinking and in our mindset that we've brought to the table that we've let seeped in. And I'm not even necessarily saying it's our fault because we're so used to it. We're growing up in a culture and a society where everything's at our fingertips. But when presented with a verse of scripture like this, I have to be honest with you. My reaction is, okay, Jesus, but when? And you said daily, but like, do I have to carry it for the whole day? Is there, it's a little bit inconvenient to go to bed with a cross on my back. Can I take it off when I go to sleep? And, and, and hey, Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry, um, but today I, I, I saw the cross right there, but, you know, I just, I missed it. Because for whatever reason, my flesh wasn't feeling it. And, and Jesus, I, can you give us no leeway? But it's in this same scripture. He, he didn't come to make a religion that was tailor-made to the whims of your flesh. Because it's later on in this same chapter that he says, any man with one hand on the plow looking over his shoulder is unfit for my kingdom. Where's the leeway in that? Where's the whim of my flesh in that? Where's the option in my flesh that Jesus, but I'm tired today. I don't care. Pick it up. I don't care. Why? Because ultimately, and here's here's why, that sounds like a horrible statement. What do you mean he doesn't care? Because he completes it in his ministry. He says, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and find rest. So you can deny yourself and you can pick up a cross. But he's not going to let you carry it alone. Ultimately, he'll do it through you by his grace, which is another subject I won't get into tonight. But he didn't give an opportunity for our flesh to simply have its way. He, he, he gives no, no chance. And, and what does this have to do with anything? The thing, what in the world are you getting at? What I'm getting at is I've watched people who are apostolic in doctrine. They believe what the apostles preach. They believed everything that I started out talking about. 
but they don't take up a cross. They love the idea of a Jesus that can fit into their schedule. But he says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So when he said, deny himself, pick up a cross, he said, I'm not giving you any certainties. I'm not giving you a retirement plan. I'm not giving you a 401k. See, I'll be apostolic in what I believe, but when it comes to this following Jesus stuff, I just don't know if I can fit it into my 10-year plan. I don't know if I can balance that with my job. I don't know if I can prioritize him over everything else. Now, bless God, I'm apostolic. I believe in speaking in tongues. I believe in the infilling of the Holy Ghost. But Jesus, do I really have to daily? We love to be like him when it's convenient. And can I tell you, it's convenient to be like him within these four walls. Say, Nathaniel, you're just you're you're nitpicking. You're just you're just getting into the weeds of all of this. And 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 you're pointing out such an uncritical thing. We all know we're supposed to be like Jesus. Once again, I, I wish that I was. But hear me tonight, and this is the burden that I've come with. I wish that this was some light thing, but I'm telling you before God, I've watched. And I've been grieved in my spirit. Because I've seen people who are apostolic. And they'll die for the apostolic truth. They'll die for this doctrine. But they won't die on a cross. The reason why I'm concerned is because of this passage of scripture I've never heard before until this last year. Until I came across it in my reading. In Luke 13 and 22. And he went through the cities and villages teaching. And journeying toward Jerusalem. Then said one unto him. Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able to. When once the master of the house is risen up and hath shut the door, and ye begin to stand without and to knock on the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open up unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence you are. Then, and here's where it gets convicting. Ye begin to say, we've eaten with you and drunk in thy presence. And thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence you are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping, hear me in the Holy Ghost tonight, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last which shall be first, and there are first 
which shall be last. We've eaten with you, and we drank in your presence. We heard you teach in our streets. Can I break that down for you in 2023? We've spent time in your presence, and we worshiped you. We've heard your word brought forth, and it was a word from you. You taught in our streets, and we heard it. These are people who are in truth. They believe everything that I just talked about. They believe the plan of salvation. They have spent time in his presence. But I have to just speculate they left it. And they spent time in his presence and hearing his word. But they lived their lives in iniquity. Not walking with him. See, you can have the truth and have a relationship with God. But when you have the truth and you don't have the relationship, you make nothing more than a religious tradition. I'll prove it. In being apostolic in my life, I've always thought, and I'm going to walk away because I could go to each and every scripture, but if you'll just trust me for a minute. I've thought in being apostolic, like I said, we have a knowledge that we have to be like Jesus. It's in there somewhere, deep down. We've got to walk like him. We've got to act like him. We've got to talk like him. And I've always thought... Being like Jesus, you have to love everybody, correct? Yes? Let's get some group participation. You have to love everyone. You have to give your life and, 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 and all of these things and lay down your life. Yeah, we know that. And it's not acceptable to hate anyone except for one. Can anyone in this room tell me who Jesus hated? Pharisees. We see this nice, kind, loving God robed in flesh. And he says, don't rebuke the little children. Bring them up to me if you offend one of them. His words are so pure, but yet every single time he comes in contact with these men, it's rebuke after rebuke after rebuke. He hated the Pharisees. He hated the Sadducees. He says in, in, in Matthew 23, he goes on and on. Oh, oh, woe to you, Pharisees and scribes. He takes an entire, there's an entire chapter devoted simply to how horrible these men were. For the last five, six years of my life, there's been times of prayer where the Lord has brought on a burden in my spirit. And all I've known that it is and all he's ever told me is he said it's the spirit of Israel. And I've been burdened with this deep moaning and intercessory prayer for nothing more than what I've known to be the spirit of Israel. And I've never had an understanding of what it was. I've never asked him and and, and I've just wondered and I've speculated. It's got to be something to do with religious tradition. It's got to be something to do with who the Pharisees were or who the Sadducees were. 
But the issue is, Jesus didn't hate the Pharisees. He didn't hate the Sadducees. If that's the case, then John 3 wouldn't be in your Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And who did he tell it to? The man who was a part of the group of religious individuals that were going to crucify him. The Bible says, and I believe it's recorded in Luke 9 and, and through most of the Gospels, that Jesus is on his way. I think it's to Galilee. And, and as he's on his way, it says that Jairus, the what ruler of the synagogue, comes to him. And we know the story. Jesus is on his way, and then he stops. Who touched me? And they say, Jesus, you're in a crowd. And he, he turns to the woman with the issue of blood and says, you're healed, and, and so on and so forth. But then he gets back, and someone comes to Jairus and says, don't worry about disturbing the master. Your daughter's dead. And the people that hated Jesus, the people that crucified Jesus, he didn't hate the Pharisees. He didn't hate the Sadducees. He didn't hate the rulers of the synagogue because if that was the case, he would have never gone into Jairus' home. He would have never walked up to his daughter and said, awaken and arise, give her bread to eat and raise her from the dead. He would have never met with Nicodemus at night. Why? Here's the issue. Jesus didn't come to destroy the Pharisees' doctrine. He said, I've come to fulfill the law. And the prophets, not to destroy them. The Pharisees, up until that point of time, were in truth to what they knew. The day of Pentecost was not yet, the Spirit hadn't been poured out. So, to the best of their ability, they were doing everything they knew what to do to walk according to what God had said. What was the issue? Why is it this group of people that gets blasted? And, and, and absolutely just <clears throat> rebuke after rebuke after rebuke. What made Jesus seemingly so against them? It wasn't their doctrine. It wasn't their religion. It was their iniquity. So here's the problem, and what does this have to do with anything? Jesus rebuked the Pharisees by which the omniscient God, robed in flesh, could discern their motive. Why do we know this to be the case? Because in Luke 9, here come the disciples. They say, Jesus, Jesus, hey, we just got done rebuking this guy back here. And Jesus says, why is that? Well, he was casting out devils in your name, but it literally says, they, they tell him, but he doesn't follow us. He's doing what we do, but he's not a part of, of, of us, and he doesn't proclaim to be your disciple. And Jesus says, no, no, no. He probably looks at him and says, no, no. No, guys, you, you, don't, you don't do that. I can't imagine I, I have to take creative liberties for just a second and just believe that <clears throat> Jesus, that, that when these men rebuked him, they're probably in their head thinking, and, and, and this is just complete speculation, but 
They've seen Jesus rebuke the Pharisees time and time again. They, they've seen him say, you, 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 you're full of, of self-righteousness and iniquity and all this stuff. So in their minds, they're being like Jesus and saying, hey, stop. Stop doing what you're doing. But what's the problem? The disciples didn't have the ability to discern motive. And Jesus says, don't rebuke them because anyone who's not against us is for us. So in being apostolic, I think I've always had this mindset, and maybe it's just me, that there's one spirit that's justified in hating. That's the spirit of the Pharisee. But when I take a back seat and deem someone to have a Pharisaical spirit, I determine their motive. And when I determine their motive, I put my place in the position of an omniscient God. And to put myself in the place of God over my life is iniquity. So what am I saying? When I point my finger at someone and say that's a pharisaical spirit, I'm not saying you can't discern it. But when I, I say, no, I'm not, I don't have anything to do with that, it's, it's pharisaical, I myself become a Pharisee. Because you cannot look at someone and determine their motive. You cannot, you, you can, the Lord might give you an inclination, but we can't even know our own hearts and everything that's in there. So when I look at you, well... I'll, I'll make it real for a second. So, so when I look at that written sermon, and I look at the smoke, and I look at the light show, when I look at the song that went for one, one verse, one chorus, exactly three minutes and 87 seconds, which is not even possible, and ended, and I say, and I say nah, I, 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 matter of fact, I'm just going to sit here with my coat buttoned because I can't partake in this. This is... You have made this religious tradition. I myself become the very thing that Jesus hated. Iniquity. It'll, it, it will kill you. And if it doesn't kill you, it will kill your relationship with God. Here's the problem that we face today. Truth doesn't eliminate iniquity. So ultimately, what have I said? What am I getting at? You can be apostolic in doctrine, and I'm glad that you are, but that doesn't mean you don't have iniquity operating in your life. And the burden that I've come is, is I don't want it to be said of Antioch Central that they banged on the door after the master shut it. And we know the verse in Matthew, and he says, they came to me and they said, Jesus, we prophesied in your name. We cast out devils in your name. We worked wonders in your name. Here's the problem. Those are all apostolic things. We were apostolic in doctrine. He says, I know, but I don't know you. Because you never made an effort to know me. And you may have had an understanding of truth. And you may have had an understanding of my desire for how a church service was supposed to go. 
But did you ever deny yourself and pick up your cross? Did you ever say, here's my life. Here I am as a vessel. And I don't just serve you on Monday and on Thursday. But you make every decision for me. It's up to you, not me. I'm saying, I'm so glad that you prophesied. I'm so glad that you had the... I'm glad that you operated in the gifts of the Spirit. I'm glad that you weren't unfamiliar with the prophetic. But I never knew you. You tried so hard in being apostolic that you forgot to try to be like me. Paul said, follow me, what? Not as I seek what truth is. Not follow me because I'm an apostle or a preacher or a prophet or an evangelist. Not follow me because I operate in the prophetic. Not follow me because I have a revelation. But follow me as I follow Christ. This is the man that ascended into the third. My my bad, that was John. I believe so. But this is the man who had an understanding of grace. He wrote most of what we have today is the New Testament. And he said, don't try to be like me. I'm a person. I'm a human. I make mistakes. Say, Nathaniel, you're nitpicking. But this is not that important. How many of you know the name? If I said it here tonight, Billy Cole. A powerful apostle. A powerfully used in our movement to see thousands of of people receive the Holy Ghost. I wish I was making something up tonight. I wish I had sat back and when pastor said, hey, you're, you're, you're up such and such a night, I said, okay, let me find some soapbox to get on. But the apostle Billy Cole, I was at a conference earlier this year where a man was speaking who was very close to him. And he said that the man of God on his deathbed, he came into him one day and he had tears running down his face. This is the man who had seen thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of miracles. He'd seen thousands filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, speaking in other tongues, giving his life to the cause of spreading the gospel. He came in and he had tears streaming down his face on his deathbed. And he said, I had a vision last night. He said, I know this is it. I'm on my way out. I know this is it. This is, this is where it ends for me. And he said, but I had a vision. And in this vision, I got to heaven. And I saw Jesus. And he said, I ran to him and I embraced him. And I said, Jesus, it's so good to see you. I've longed for this day my whole life. And he said, Jesus looked at me. And he said he had tears in his eyes as he embraced me. And he said this, and I'll never forget it as long as I live. He said that in this vision of this man of God, he said, Jesus looked at him and he said, you have done such an amazing job at being apostolic. I'm so happy for you. I'm so thankful that you, you, you took the apostles' doctrine and you spread it all across the globe. I'm so thankful for that. But he said in this vision, Jesus with tears streaming down his face, 
He said, I'm so thankful that you were apostolic. But I wish that you had just tried a little bit more to be like me. This is Billy Cole. This is not just some some made up story. On his deathbed. Or if you were to ask who was an apostle that lived in the last 100 years, he would be on that list. He said on his deathbed and he said he grabbed this minister's hand and he said, boy, I want you to be apostolic. He said, I want you to do a better job at being apostolic than I did. He said, but more than that, can I tell you, I want you to do a better job at being like Jesus than I did. Because we can have truth, but if we don't mix truth with the God who gave it to us, we can have smoke and dim the lights of this auditorium. We might as well, because we're nothing more than white sepulchers. We're nothing more than righteousness on the outside. When we sit and say, oh, he's reading his message. Thumbs down. I can't approve of this. I know that's not apostolic. Congratulations, you're also a Pharisee. And I can sit here and say that to you tonight because I myself have sat in that seat. Filthy on the inside. Filled with nothing but corruption and sin. But righteous on the outside. And I know this because I've heard it for the last year to two years of my life. I can't stand this organization and I can't stand that organization. And I can't stand to be in the same room as this person. And I can't stand to be around that person. But you've got the Holy Ghost, I'm glad. And you're sensitive to the Spirit, I'm glad. But you don't know the sayings of your Savior. Because if you did... Such words wouldn't be able to leave your mouth. And you wouldn't be able. You wouldn't be able to entertain such thoughts. I've come here with a burden tonight. So please hear me out. Don't be one of the ones banging on the door. Saying there's Billy Cole. I see him. And there's Jacob and there's Isaac. And there's David. Oh, how I want to meet David. And there's Paul. Paul, the one who said we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The very basis of the doctrine of spiritual warfare. And, 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 and Paul, Paul, I listened to your teaching. He said, no, you didn't listen to all of it, though. Oh, you, you heard some of it. Yes. You heard in 1 Corinthians to my letter to the church at Corinth when I told you what the gifts of the Spirit were. But you missed the rest of the chapter. And you missed chapter 13 where all I could talk about was it doesn't matter how much you operate in those if you don't have love. And if I prophesy with the tongues of angels, but I don't have love, I'm nothing more. 
than a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. So the Lord, in preparation for this week, moved on me. And he said, the spirit of Israel. And I said, okay, what is it? You've always talked to me about this. What does it mean? In Isaiah 59 and verse 1, the prophet Isaiah writes, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. He's more than able to see you, to hear what you do. But your iniquities have separated you between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue hath muttered perverseness. I would never dare sit in this place tonight and point a finger at someone and say, this is you. But what I can stand before you tonight and tell you is that this was me. And I live my life justified in apostolic doctrine and principles. Justified in going to churches and knowing I know so much more about being used and sensitive to the spirit than you do. But I did it in iniquity. And I made myself a white sepulcher on the outside. But inside I was nothing more than filthy rags. And Isaiah says, you've separated. He's not talking to Babylon. He's not talking to Assyria. He's talking to the people who were instructed. You go through these steps in the presence of the one who said, let there be light. The almighty God, this is what you have to do to have fellowship and get in his presence. And for him to have a relationship with him and serve him, forsaking all other gods. And you've allowed iniquity to creep in. And he said the spirit of Israel is not religious tradition. But the spirit of Israel is just man's iniquity. Because iniquity is what will turn truth into nothing more than a tradition. When you take yourself and you put yourself in God's role of the judgment seat. And saying this is of him and this is of not. When you have no right to make such a judgment. You have no place and you forget the blood that he shed and covered you with. You put yourself in his place and you say, I'm going to run my own life. See, we like to say that we know what it means to be like Jesus. But Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew 23, in verse 25, he said, you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. He says in Matthew 22, this is why I know he discerned their motives because when they would try to stumble him, and I'll try to land the plane here soon and come to a close, but he, the Bible says that when, when the Pharisees tried to, to catch Jesus and get him to say something that wasn't true, the Bible says that Jesus discerned their motives. He knew they were just asking him something to try to trip him up. To try to get him to say something against what they knew to be truth. And the amazing thing is Jesus wouldn't do it because he wasn't there to abolish their doctrine. 
He wasn't there to tell them they weren't in truth. But he could tell your motives in this are not pure. He could discern the feelings and the thoughts and intents of their heart. He knows. This is why he says, when they ask him a question, he says, you err not knowing the scripture in Matthew 22 and 29. The ironic thing is it, it doesn't take a Bible scholar to understand that of all people, these were the men who understood the scripture. At least they, they knew it, had an understanding of it or not, I can't say, but but they knew what the scripture said, and he says you err, but that word err there doesn't mean you don't know it. In the Greek, that word err actually means you've derived from it. You have the word of God, you have truth, you have the right doctrine, but you have deceived yourself off course from it. And you've made it something that it's not. So what do we do? That's the answer. I told you tonight, my title was At the Feet of Judas. I've lived my life for the last year, year and a half, two years, trying to engulf my mind with the scriptures and sayings and teachings of Jesus. And it hasn't been until this last couple of months that, to me, this is one of the most underrated acts that Jesus ever committed. None of the other gospels recorded why I don't know. But John for some reason had an understanding of how in important this was. He understood how important this situation and event was. He records it in in John 13. This is the last Passover, the last supper. This is after Mary at, at a different time before this. They've eaten in the home. Luke records that it takes place in the home of a Pharisee, Simon. But Mary's broken the alabaster box and anointed Jesus. And and Judas says, what has she done? The Bible says that after Jesus says something to Judas, that Satan entered into him. And he decided that's when he was going to betray him. This is after all of this and in John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come and that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world. He loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God. He riseth from supper, and he laid aside his garments, and he took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poureth water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. And Simon Peter, the all-righteous and 
great Simon Peter, who always tended to put his foot in his mouth, said, Dost thou wash my feet? And Jesus said unto him, I do, thou knowest not now. What I do, thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter said unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus said unto him, If I wash you not, you have no part with me. The Bible says in verse 10 that Jesus says, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and you are clean, but not all. Because he knew, verse 11, who would betray him. And he said, you are not all clean. So after that, in verse 12, he says, after he washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, know ye what I have done to you? No, they could have never fathomed or imagined. You call me master and Lord, and you say, well, for so am I. If I then your Lord and master have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And before all of your minds go there, I'm not going to spring on foot washing, I promise. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done unto you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Probably feels out of left field. Where did this come from? If you'll allow me for just a second, as I come to a close, to take just some creative liberty to imagine this moment. We preach about the miracles. I've heard it said that <clears throat> Jesus didn't die on the cross. He died in Gethsemane when he wrestled with his will. Said, not my will, but your will be done. And I, I believe that's true. But I, I, I also have to say that, that John, the one with the understanding of his deity, understood the significance of this story. And, and, and dinner's over. And Jesus gets up from the table and he picks up a towel and he picks up his, his basin and he fills it with water. Now, here's the thing. Foot washing today in the church, I have to be honest with you, has become more about us than it is about the people we're doing it for. When I wash someone's feet, especially a man of God, it's not an uncommon thing that it's this, this sign of, of submission and, and humbling, and that's true. But if I can be honest, a lot of times we do that with the intent of put your mantle on me. I want your blessing. I want your anointing. But what did these 12 men have to give Jesus? I can't say this for a fact, but I, what I can say is that in principle, it wouldn't be unlike him. He gets up from the table. And I have to imagine that all of heaven just grows quiet and watches. And all the demons in hell, they grow quiet as they just watch. What's he doing? What's he about? There's no way he's about to do what we think he's about to do. And, and if you'll allow me for a second, I can't help but imagine that he walked over to John, the beloved, and kept going. And to Andrew, 
and maybe even Peter or Bartholomew or Thomas. And he walked past them with his basin. He walked past them all the way down, and, and I can just imagine. You're going to help me for a second, and I promise I'm going to pick on you, but I'll make up for it. I can imagine this is after Judas has determined he's going to betray him. After the devil has entered him. And while the scripture doesn't say this, I can say based on my own experience, it probably was very akin to a child who knows they've done something wrong. They know the corruptness of their heart and their sin. And I can only say from my own experience that when that's the case, and you start to get close to the one who has the authority over your life. When that parent starts to get close to you and they start to prick and they start to pry. A cold sweat begins to break out. Your hands get all clammy. And your heart begins to race. I'm only a couple years removed from some of those times. Not too far from it. And and. The disciples are sitting there and Judas is sitting there and the whole room gets quiet as Judas' heart begins to race. Because here's his moment up until this point. Aside from the, what happened at Bethany, he's had no reason to want to betray Jesus. Here's his time. Jesus, all you've got to do is just walk past me. Go to John. Go to Andrew. Go to who we all expect you to go to. John, the beloved, who sits and rests his head on his chest. Go to them. Judas is saying, he might call me out, but I, 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 here's my chance. And all of the demons are watching. Here's our chance, guys. We're going to get him. He's fully God, but he's also fully man. He was, a, he was not a high priest who wasn't touched with our infirmities. He had the same feelings as you and I. I know I've gone for a while tonight, but please hear me out. He walks past the disciples. And I don't know this, but all I can do is imagine Bartholomew, Thomas, Peter. And he makes his way to Judas. And he gets down. And the Bible says that he knew all things. He had an understanding of what was in him. But he also had an understanding of who he was. And he said, I know you're going to betray me, Judas. I know you're going to turn your back on me. I'm not giving you any reason to. I know, you, I, I, I know you're going to turn me in. But I, I've got to wash your feet. And can I tell you. That iniquity dies when we can make it to the feet of Judas. And say, you have no right for me to do this to you. You have no place to sit here while I wash your feet. You're going to betray me. You've turned your back on me. It's already entered into your heart. I've spent three years with you and it's meant nothing. I've slept with you. I've eaten with you. I've commissioned you in ministry. And it's meant nothing to you. You've turned your back. 
But Judas, I've got to wash your feet. Because this is where my iniquity goes to die. Where I can take self out of the equation. And I don't want to. And I don't feel like it. And I know what they've done to me. And I know how they've hurt me. And I know how they're going to turn their back. I know how they're going to betray me. But I'm going to humble myself before them. And I can tell you today, it is impossible for self to exist when you humble yourself to the person who deserves it least. And this is where this is the hardest part and what I believe we like to neglect when it comes to following Jesus. And Timothy, you can come. It's not fun when you study what he taught so much. And in the time of need, I can't tell you how many situations there's been where circumstances and situations with people have led me to want to defend myself. And people have looked at me and said, Nathaniel, how are you going to let them walk all over you like that? And he said, pray for those who despitefully use you. And what I began to see is that when I really began taking his hand and letting him lead me, he'd say, I know it hurts sometimes. I know you wish you could change it. I know you wish that you could just speak up and draw the line and say, no more. They've walked all over you. And people have looked at me, not even peers. They've said, Nathaniel, why did you just say something? I can't. Because it's when I pray for those who despitefully use me that my iniquity says I have to go. I can't stay here. I've come to you tonight, Antioch Central, to tell you this one thing. I'm glad you can prophesy. I'm glad you can operate in the realm of the supernatural. But can you wash Judas's feet? Can you get down and humble yourself? Say, you don't deserve this, and I know you don't. When he said, pray for those who despitefully use you, the painful thing about that scripture is he described their motive. He didn't say those who offend you. He didn't just say those who hurt you. But he said despitefully use you. To their own gain, their own advantage. And I can't help but believe that he moved on from Judas and he went to Peter. 
Peter who's only here because he thinks the kingdom of God's going to be physical up to this point and that he's going to take it by force. He thinks up until this point that because of his position, his life's about to get a whole lot better because here's our king, here's our Messiah. And he knows if he knew that Judas was going to betray him, he knew way in advance that Peter was going to deny him, that he was going to curse him. Got up from Judas and he moved over to Peter. And Peter said, Don't wash me, Jesus. I don't, don't wash me. And it's a little bit harsh, but Jesus, in essence, if I could put it in today's terms, looked at him and said, Shut your mouth. It's self righteousness. You don't understand what I'm doing right now. That the God of heaven and earth robed himself in flesh. And he came before the one who was going to turn his back on him for no reason. And said, I've got to humble myself in front of you. Because I come to tell you tonight that the devil doesn't like a church who knows how to do spiritual warfare. The devil doesn't like a church who knows how to operate in the prophetic. But all of hell begins to tremble when we begin to get down and say, Judas, you've hurt me. You've despitefully used me. This has all been for your own intention. This has all been for your own gain. But it's later in this chapter, in chapter 13 of John, that we quote so famously, where he says to these men, by this will all, know, will all men know that you're my disciples. Not because you speak in tongues. Not because your church services are spirit-led. They're going to look and they're going to say, oh, that must be Jesus' disciple. No. When they see your love one for another, that's the most supernatural point that you can get to. It was T.W. Barnes, the man that we know to be a prophet of God, that said the epitome of spirituality is when God can love anyone, anywhere, through you at any time. That's what spirituality looks like. When we can say, Jesus, I'll, I'll love them, not him, not Judas. I'll wash John's feet, I'll wash Peter's feet, I'll wash Andrew's feet. I'll wash James' feet, the son of thunder. But don't make me go wash Judas' feet. He doesn't deserve it. He's done nothing for me to humble myself to him. I've come to you tonight, Antioch Central, because by the grace of God, I have lived this. against what my mind and what my flesh wanted to do. Matthew, I picked you for a reason. This is 
one of my best friends. He's like a brother. We haven't always been that close, but this last year we've been able to reconnect. And earlier this year, I got the chance to start being a part of a campus ministry, the campus ministry at AACC that while many are, are a part of and help, and there's a team that goes into it, this man right here is the leader of it. He's the club president. And when I joined, I was checked in my spirit. I didn't want to show up and sit in the back of the room and say, what are you guys doing? You could be doing this better and you could change this. Please hear my spirit tonight and hear what I'm saying. I didn't show up and I've been helping and, and a part and I've watched leaders in ministry for years now and say, Matt, you could be doing this better, dude. There's things you could change. But when I found out he was the club leader, he's only a couple months older than me. We've grown up all of our lives. Not because of his qualification, but I made up my mind that when I stepped foot on that campus, I was submitted to one person and one person alone. That was Matthew Lewis. And I made up my mind that there's times in which I could say, based off of a knowledge and understanding of scripture and the word of God, you shouldn't act like that. You guys shouldn't have said that. You couldn't have done that. But instead... I did my very best to get on my feet. Not because he doesn't deserve it. He's a great man of God. But because it killed my iniquity. Because when I come to a brother and I humble myself. This is where I come to die. within myself there was things that I went to Matthew about and said hey what do you think about this I don't want it to affect the club if you think this is going to mess things up just tell me just tell me I went to pastor I went to Isaac I went to anyone else but, but Matthew there was certain decision in my life that I made that he was the only other person that I went to that even knew Not because that I had to, but because I knew that was in getting on my knees and submitting myself to him that Nathaniel could die. And there was something in me that I had to give up. There was something in me that said, you walked with me this far. Now you want to know where it's led you to? Keep your mouth shut. But Jesus, keep your mouth shut. Wash their feet. Wash their feet. Because it's not going to be by the souls that you bring into the kingdom of God. That people look at and they say, that's his disciple. 
not going to be by the Bible studies you teach that people look at you and say, that's his disciple. It's not going to be by the prayer meetings that you have with apostolic ministry that people look at and they say, that's his disciple. But humanity has an innate ability to recognize when a human humiliates themselves and putting themselves in a position of submission before someone else, that's not natural. And the only way to do that is when it's something in you that's so alive and it's breathing and it's living and it's this thing called flesh dies. telling you in the fear of the Lord tonight these altars are open I'm not going to make you go and say pray for someone you have an offense over I'm not going to make you wash someone's feet but I would to God that a spirit of repentance would sweep the Because Isaiah's ministry was not all bad. He says in chapter 53 that this Jesus, who we had done nothing wrong to, or I'm sorry, that he had done nothing wrong to us, this Jesus who was God of heaven and earth, he owed us nothing. Isaiah said he would come. And he would be beaten for our transgression. And the scripture says he would be bruised. For what? That spirit of Israel. That creeps up. That spirit of iniquity. That's got its claws in the church today. It's got its claws in those who are on both ends of the spectrum. It's got its claws in those who operate in apostolic doctrine. And in those who are religiously traditionist to the core. It's got its claws in both of them because all of us want a religion and we want a God that we can put on and take off. But we don't want a God that's going to make us humble ourselves and wash the feet of Judas. But Isaiah doesn't leave us there. He says we like sheep, all of us have gone astray. You err not knowing the scriptures. You know them in here, but you've derived off of their meaning and what I intended for them to be about. And I don't want him to shut the door one day on me. said, no, you defended yourself when I told you not to. You spoke up and you pleaded your case when I told you I'd handle it. When I told you to take it, you had to open your mouth because our flesh doesn't like that. But I want to get there one day knock on the door and he's saying Nathaniel 
to see you. And I can say, Jesus, it's so good to meet you face to face. You're everything I've tried to pattern my life off of, and it's been so that stupid towel <laughs> go to Judas's feet and say this this is where I go to die because you can't pick up a cross unless you first deny yourself and denying yourself in iniquity cannot coexist come to you Antioch Central with this burden I ask them what's your heartbeat what does this mean why do you want me to say all of this let me hear what you're crying out he said people have just forgotten me days without number no they come to church Sunday morning and I know who I'm talking to tonight they come Sunday night but they never taken me and walked with me and they struggle with anxiety they struggle with all these repercussions and these circumstances because right now I can tell you I'm under more weight in my life than I've ever been in under more challenging and difficult circumstances than I've ever been in and I'm closer to him than I've ever been and there's no doubt that I'll be able to do it and make it through why? Because I took his hand and said, okay, where you lead, I'll follow. And he might lead you to a valley. He might lead you to a mountain. Or he might lead you to the feet of Judas. Are you going to pull your hand away, Antioch? You don't have to agree with me. You don't even have to believe me. But if nothing else, determine within yourself tonight, I'm not going to be one of those ones. Trying to get in. Because I've heard people that say, they can't do that. That's too Pentecostal. They can't do that. It's religious tradition.
No, I'm not going because I know what that service is going to be like. That's okay. But when you're knocking on the door one day. And he said, you got the truth. But you never got me. Paul said, I seek to apprehend that which has apprehended me. Why? That I might know him. Not just in the power of his resurrection, but the fellowship of his suffering. These altars are open, Antioch Central. And what you do from this point on is up to you. Jesus. I've taken pride in what you've shown me. And pride in what I know to be true and not true, what I know to be in your word and not in your word. I have allowed a revelation of truth to put myself on a pedestal and take your place. But you didn't neglect Judas's feet to wash. So I have no right to either. it's late whenever you need to go you're welcome to go consider this your dismissal but all I ask is that 
be respectful and mindful of those who the Lord is doing something with right now in this moment. And I pray, if nothing else, my spirit in this message has been right. If I've offended you in any way in what I've said or haven't said, then I answer to my pastor, to God. I ask that you would forgive me for.